Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors of Strategy Page discuss current events with a splash of history. I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk. With me today is the editor of Strategy Page, well-known military author and game designer, Jim Dunnigan. Also joining us is the associate editor of Strategy Page, columnist and author, Austin Bay. Welcome, Austin and Jim. It's that time of year where we talk a, a little bit about the end of the year and a lot about what's coming. So, uh, Jim, you have some thoughts on uh, what happened last year and, and where we're at. Well, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm finishing up the uh, annual wars update, which will uh, come out on the 4th, I believe, Monday. And uh, one thing I noted was the trends we predicted last year are still underway. In other words, there are fewer wars. Uh, we dropped four uh, that, you know, at, like many, as, as was pointed out in, in strategy page, when we uh, when we drop regular coverage of an area, uh, that is simply there's not enough bloodshed there to justify, you know, uh, covering it regularly. Um, and, uh, and the death rates keep coming down. And you any you check any source that monitors you know worldwide violence <laughs> or into global terrorism, and you'll find that the same basically the same numbers. They vary a little bit, but it's all basically the same. And this has been a trend that's been going on since the end of the Cold War, and that was mainly because you know the Russians were uh, <clears throat> financing and supporting in many ways a lot of the uh, the the rebellions, so to speak, uh, and uprisings around the world. And uh, uh, when that money dried up, just like North Korea found out, boy, you're in bad shape. Uh, the, uh, in fact, the only two people on the, uh, the, the, the uh, there was a thing started, the financial, uh, FA something or other, we covered it in the Pakistan section, the India-Pakistan section. Uh, they, they set up international, uh, na- international uh, group. Mainly the uh, the major banking nations, as it were, the nations that uh, that uh, basically supply the international finance community. If you want big loans or to sell bonds, you have to have the approval of this operation. Uh, you know these these countries. Uh, well, they agreed to uh, to go after countries that were supporting terrorism, either because they were allowing money laundering or you know un, uh, unidentified you know transactions or what have you, and doing it via the the international financial network. Uh, they would be blacklisted or gray listed first, and then blacklisted. Only two countries are on that list uh, because everybody else who comes close gets on that gray list scrambles to get off it. Uh, and the two countries on the list are Iran and North Korea. Um, so you see a pattern there. Pakistan, well, I, I got more stuff coming up, you know, in strategy page on that. They're really scrambling. In fact, they even, they even, uh, <laughs> they they threw uh, Mullah Rasul. He was the uh, the head of the Afghan Taliban until uh, one, of, one of our missiles got him inside Pakistan uh, in 2016. Uh, they threw him under the bus when they recently, one of their anti-terrorism courts, you know, they released the guy who, who murdered, who beheaded uh, David Pearl, uh, the reporter on on, uh, on video. Uh, they released him from prison, but they went after the dead Rasul and seized uh, a, a life insurance policy he took, under, took out under a false name. He never got paid, but they went after the insurance company and got the uh, $20,000, $2,000 in premiums he'd already paid, as well as, I think, a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of real estate that he had bought. 
Um, but you know they're 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 this close, really. They they've had a couple near scrapes, and they've only been kept off by China going to bat for them in the UN. But China's apparently told them we can't protect you anymore. You guys are too incorrigible. Chinese are not crazy about the way Pakistan supports, uh, uh, you know, terrorism. In fact, I don't know if I mentioned in, in this update, but uh, you know, uh, three of the uh, the top terrorism nations and with terrorism, you know, deaths as it were and attacks are Afghanistan, uh, uh, Pakistan, and way down on the list, India. And the main source of, uh, of terrorism support for all three is the Pakistani military, which, again, we cover regularly. And that's become a real soap opera in Pakistan, where the, uh, the, the population is getting tired of being, you know, a, an army with a country attached. Uh, but that's one of the trends that keep go, keeps going on. Now, despite the fact that the Pakistan has nuclear weapons or the Pakistani military has nuclear weapons, uh, that's a that's a distinction which is becoming even more important as time goes on. Uh, they are unlikely to use them because they're facing suicide. I mean, uh, these guys are fairly pragmatic. They thought they could basically score some big victories. They could control Afghanistan, and they could basically get uh, Kashmir back by covertly supporting Islamic terrorism groups who would attack on the on the orders, as it were, of, of the Pakistani military. Well, that's been pretty much fully exposed now. That's why they're, they're, they're rolling closer and closer to getting on that blacklist, which will be devastating because one, th- one bad effect that the military has had uh, on Pakistan is not just the, the large chunk of the budget, much higher than any other country in the region, uh, the gross to the military, but the fact that they, they, they've used their leverage, as it were, to gain ownership uh, sort of like a, the mob saying, hey, a nice company you have here. Be ashamed, you know, something should happen to it. And bingo, they become part owner or eventually complete owner. I mean, it's really a, the mafia military, you might call it. There's a, there's a, there's a title to run with, Austin. Uh, but the um, It's, it's uh, very accurate, Jim. Exactly, exactly. But their comeuppance is coming because uh, Pakistani's credit rating is, is reached zero the military hasn't got a credit rating. The country has a credit rating, and it's it's gone. Uh, forced to join, forced to choose between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Pakistan equivocated mainly because the military, uh, you know the uh, you know the, the the civilian government, the civilian politicians were all for sticking with Saudi Arabia, which had always been a good friend, as it were. Um, but now they feel that, uh, well, maybe it's better if we stay tight with Iran, which is right next door, uh, rather than far away in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, but that's caused them a lot of bad press inside of Pakistan. Um, so that's something that's going to continue. It's going to get worse. And in fact, it may come to a to head, so to speak, a, to a crisis point in Pakistan. And you might see a fundamental change in governance there, which means they have to get their military under control. By the way. India, which, you know, was was created at the same time, uh, a, a lot of Muslim politicians insisted they had to have their own Muslim country. And that's how where Pakistan came from, uh, an idea that I think people will, will eventually say, you know, this isn't really working very well. Uh, but they India put strict controls on the military, so much so that the military is kind of crippled uh, because of it. Uh, but that's another story which we cover regularly. Uh, but in Pakistan, the military basically took over in all but name, and it's ruined the country. 
and you know what goes around eventually bites you in the butt, and that's what's happening in Pakistan. But worldwide, you're seeing more uh, countries with similar situations to Pakistan, uh, like Mali. Uh, the military intervened. Uh, Thailand and Burma, two countries that we uh, we basically uh, stopped covering regularly uh, because the military there uh, in both countries uh, had it has is being forced to uh, allow the the elected government to be the final arbiter of what is good for their respective countries. Uh, there's been so many coups in in Burma, uh, in Thailand. It's not so much the uh, 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 the uh, the military interfering. It's the uh, it's the military. Uh, how should I put it? Uh, military kind of supports. Uh, you know the the traditionalists uh, who aren't willing to be flexible when it comes to, for example, dealing with the uh, the Muslim minority in the south, which is where most of the violence was since 2004, which has now died out as these things usually do, but. Uh, Burma again was part of the Indian, uh, the Indian Raj, the Indian colony, uh, and they did not control their military. And geez, by the 1960s, the military had taken over until 2010. Um, so you have situations like this all over the world, which were not impacted by the uh, the fall of communism because they were all basically, you know, uh, run by the, the intelligence agencies, which answered to Moscow uh, or control. They had the, the Russians had the final say on anything. But you had democ- so-called democratic countries or non-communist countries who suffered from this problem. Um, and, uh, you know, these things only last so long. You know, as Margaret Thatcher put it, <laughs> uh, when you run out of other people's money, you know, you've got a huge problem and not many viable solutions. So that is bringing peace. You know, the bankruptcy of the uh, the military-controlled countries. Um, and Pakistan is probably one of the major examples. Uh, another example, uh, which we don't pay that much attention to from this angle, is China. You know, uh, we call that China as, as the modern Nazi Germany because basically they're a, they're a, they're a dictatorship. Uh you know, a socialist dictatorship like, you know, the uh, National Socialist uh, Nazis who were running Germany. Uh, But they're a market economy. In other words, they have a lot of economic freedom. So they don't try the Russian, uh, you know, the the pure communist uh, state control of the entire economy. That does not work. The Chinese realized that before the Russians did, and they did something about it. But then they found out there's a there's a price attached in that they they could eventually lose the, the party could eventually lose control. Now, that's spinning out of control for China. Uh, Everybody's saying, oh, China's, the economy's going to keep growing. They're going to become the biggest in the world, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they were saying that about Japan in in the 1880s. But they had a big bust, the same kind of bust that China is headed for. Now, there's nothing the military can really do about that. The the Chinese Communist government, actually, for all the money they've been giving – uh, the military, you know, in the last 30 years, it's all in proportion to the growth of the economy. And they've tried to cut back on the corruption in the military, which is a historical facet of, you know, China. It's always been that way. And things really don't change. But the uh, the the, uh, the the absolute control of the Communist Party, uh, which makes the military, which basically forces the military, requires the military to swear allegiance and and to protect 
the Communist Party of China, not China, because, you know, the, the, the myth is that the Communist Party is China. Well, a lot of Chinese would beg to differ. Uh, they say, you know, the, uh, the you know, the Chinese Chinese uh, China is the Chinese people. Uh, and uh, they're beginning to realize that the current uh, government, the communist government, was basically just another uh, aristocratic dynasty uh, with a uh, new set of clothes. Uh, but again, that's that's uh, that's what the uh, that's what the uh, the Chinese basically have the military at, at the at the uh, at the behest of a of a powerful absolutist, uh, you know, uh, uh, communist party, uh, is uh, is basically there uh, to keep that party in power and to keep themselves uh, in cash because uh, their only way and and the Chinese politicians, the you know the the communist party leaders, they literally say this. This sometimes leaks into the into the into the press, at least the Chinese press, uh, that if you don't. You know, be faithful to the party. Another way of saying, do what we say, and no messing around. Uh, we will not uh, give you more money. And they have cut the budget a couple of times. I mean, the budget still went up, but they cut uh, areas where they found that the generals or the admirals uh, were not perhaps you know jumping high enough when the party said jump. Uh, so these little wars, you know, these these how should I put invisible wars, uh, keep going on. And they only become visible, you know, when when basically there's a major change, uh, like happened in Burma when they when they allowed the uh, you know democracy to return after almost 50 years, um, and in in Thailand where they had one coup too many, and they tried to change the institution to give the army a a permanent veto in a democratically elected parliament, and that's basically getting a lot of pushback. Um, so you have that problem that is ancient. Uh, but dressed up in, you know, like I say, new clothing. And uh, despite controlling the media, which they, they, they did in Russia after, for, during the 90s, the media was fairly free. And all sorts of interesting stuff was coming out, which displeased the political classes, which contained a lot of former uh, KGB officers. And Mr. Putin, Vladimir Putin, a former you know, KGB officer, in Germany, when the when the uh, when the uh, when the Cold War ended, uh, you know, he basically got his cronies together, and when things were spinning out of control, he took over. I mean, he got elected. He basically said, "I'll bring order." Da da da. He knew he. But the KGB were very clever guys, uh, and uh, and they still are, and and now they're in charge. But again, a lot of Russians are figuring out. You know, since the uh, since the uh, the blowback from the invasion of Ukraine in, in 2014, and all the sanctions by the their major trading partners, um, and the and the and the decline, and the, probably the the a very long term decline in the price of oil, uh, they're suffering. Again, we report this. There, even Russians have statistics. Uh, which is still fairly straight about the the uh, the increasing cost of living, the lower uh, you know personal CPU income, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, China. One thing I, I dug up uh, recently was that in the next few years, China will have a higher uh, uh, GDP per capita than Russia. Uh, and this is saying something because China still has hundreds of millions of, 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 of poverty stricken rural residents. You know, I mean, there's a huge amount of affluence on the coast where most of the economic uh, development took part, took place in the last 30 years. Um, and it's they've been slow to spread it into the interior. 
uh, which is poor for a reason. It's basically agricultural. A lot of it's marginal agricultural area. Smartest thing the Russians ever did, as painful as it was to all concerned, was to uh, the one-child policy, uh, which stopped the uh, uh, population explosion uh, from uh, destroying China. But at the same time, it's caused a huge uh, labor shortage because now they're faced with a generation of little princes, they call them. These kids are spoiled. Uh, like crazy because they got two sets of grandparents doting on them as well as their own parents. Um, and the armed, the military has problems. Uh, and of course, there aren't enough of them to go around and do the work that has to be done. So they're at plus they have the same banking problems, a, a bubble, as it were, uh, that uh, uh, that Japan had uh, that is that is about to go bust. And when it does, it's it's going to have a uh, it's going to have more serious effects on China than it than on Japan. It stopped the the the, uh, the tremendous growth rate of the Japanese uh, GDP and economy, uh, but it could have more serious implications for the uh, uh, the empire, as it were, the uh, the communist dynasty. Uh, other beyond that, you know, there's less violence, less wars, less people getting killed. What's to complain about? Well, if you're in the media business, you have to find wars and make the, make the most of what you got because good news doesn't sell. Austin, your uh, thoughts on uh, 2020 as it closes? <clears throat> well, uh, Jim and I had a uh, discussion, or actually, a, you know, email exchange about uh, retiring Sudan, and I made a instapundit post out of it. I think that actually. Uh, attracted some readers to some of our uh, wars updates that we w- normally wouldn't get. But I made a point in this this post, and Dan, I'm, I know you've you've seen it. But we had been covering Sudan since 1999. Now, from I want to say September, you can go back. Uh, re- uh, listeners can go back and look in the archives. From September 99 to maybe sometime in early 2000, you'll see some scattered reports in there. But Jim, as I recall, it was in like spring 2000, I started doing it, the Sudan regularly. Yeah. And, uh, and, and we, we, we went through, this doesn't apply just to Sudan, but if you go back and look at some of our updates prior to, say, fall 2003, or spring 2004, we'd sometimes do them by dates instead of kind of a consolidated monthly update, sometimes every six weeks or, 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 or whatever. I'm just giving readers who are unfamiliar, I mean listeners unfamiliar with it, uh, the, the process of developing how we recovered some of these, uh, some of these crises. Uh, so I shouldn't not just call them crises, uh, they're... <coughs> And it, Sudan was an example of a of a region perpetually at war. As a matter of fact, sometimes we'd refer to it inside strategy pages, Greater Sudan, uh, in the same way you'd talk about uh, Greater Serbia or <clears throat> Greater Greece, Greater Turkey, uh, because you had a, a cadre, at, in, and it was around in, in Khartoum, around uh, a former general by the name of Omar al-Bashir, who actually seized power in the late 1980s. But the group that he was in, an army-run state, really, is what it was, had, had really held 
power in uh, Khartoum since uh, the early uh, ni- uh, 1960s. Uh, the they army in this case, the military, benefited from some of these troubles. And they also had aligned themselves. This is in Sudan. This is something else that you'll see in other uh, uh, places, uh, not just in Muslim nations, but they had eventually aligned themselves with uh, a uh, more radical Islamist political extremist, which uh, protected their uh, ideological uh, flank. You see that in Pakistan as well. Jim was talking about where the Pakistani army was. Pakistani army lined up and with uh, supporting uh, elements that we would uh, identify as uh, uh, Taliban. They certainly support the Taliban in Afghanistan, but they were there's uh, a, a couple of of, of Pakistani. Uh, Muslim extremist groups that are uh, really uh, terror organizations that uh, uh, largely attack India, not just not just uh, not just India, but the Pakistanis did the same thing. The Sudanese military did the did uh, did that as well in their uh, in their uh, uh, own region. So I'll trolley back to to, to two thousand. We would <clears throat> follow primarily the war that had been going on really since the early 1980s between southern Sudan, uh, which is uh, predominantly black African, extensive number of Christians, Catholics and uh, Anglicans uh, for for the most part, and animists. There were various demographic uh, breakdowns as to uh, how many of each, but usually the f- typical figure was about 20% of those tribes are uh, uh, animist uh, sp- spirit worshipers. And some of the sources on this, uh, I, I remember researching and said, why, why, sh- why does this crop up? You'd find that actually from uh, 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 sectarian sources like the Catholic Church. And uh, uh, also the uh, Anglican Church and some non-governmental organizations that were uh, working with these uh, tribes, not just in southern Sudan, but also in northwestern Kenya and uh, to a limited extent in uh, uh, Uganda. Now, Uganda, you got into at that time the Lord's Resistance Army. Remember that one? Yeah. Uh, Joe Coney and the like. I I won't go there except it actually works in to covering Sudan because the LRA in many ways was relied on the Khartoum government's uh, uh, intelligence services for uh, support. I mean, the evidence for that is is absolutely 100, uh, 100, 100% solid. So there you had, and when it, so this is why when I'd call it Greater Sudan or, or Gemini would look uh, uh, look at it, you'd also see how Sudan got into it with uh, Ethiopia, uh, Kenya. It had some issues with Chad. It had a kind of standoff relationship with Libya, which was under Gaddafi. And even though Sudan is tied to the Nile and uh, lower Nile is Egypt and on the upper Nile, because the Blue Nile and White Nile intersect at, at Khartoum and Omdurman, it's, uh, it's 
relationship with Egypt at times would go tilt because there's a, it's, this is still uh, in dispute. There's a, a triangle of, uh, of, uh, of territory that uh, Egypt occupies. Sudan has a very tenuous claim to it, but it's also one of these border claims. And Jim's talking about military regimes. Those get mined, M-I-N-A, as in mining them, using them for galvanizing ideological purposes. You see this in China with China's claims on this. But let's let's put the, the, the this this packet of territory uh, to the side. What, you, what I've described is a very complex, uh, a co- a complex country. Say, hey, every, every place is complex. Yes, but this is uh, divided by tribes, languages, uh, religion, and there, was, there were one big serious war, and that was between the North and the South. Understand the South did have some support from Kenya. Great Britain, indirectly the, uh, the United States, mostly Americans uh, giving money to organizations to try to uh, support, you know, provide medical aid and, uh, and, and, and food. But the Kenyans and ultimately the Ugandans were helping their brethren to the north. Kenya is overwhelmingly Anglican. You've got Anglicans and Catholics in, in, in Uganda. And they also, there was the ethnic element to it. There are four or five smaller tribes that spill over the border on Uganda and and, and Kenya and, and South Sudan, the classic uh, uh, African issue. We had this complex situation that, uh, from our perspective, this was an example, uh, uh, an, an example of uh, the ongoing unresolved warfare that at the same, where, where real issues, real issues were on the table. The Southerners, we don't want to be dominated by these Islamists and, and the, the proof of, of Islamic uh, slaving, Islamic tribes. One of them you'll still see cropping up every once in a while, the Misseria, which was an Arabized uh, tribe, would go down and, and capture uh, Nur, Dinka, some of the other uh, uh, tribes in uh, South Sudan and the, the captured, kidnapped, whatever, would end up being seen working uh, in uh, Khartoum or uh, doing a house service or working in warehouses or whatever. And they could be bought back for anywhere from 100 to $300 if you could find them. Many of these people, of course, were never, uh, were, were never, uh, were never found. Uh, there were... Uh, this was a huge bone of contention in 2005 when the Comprehensive Peace Agreement uh, came about. And the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, for what it's worth, ultimately led to the secession of South Sudan. Now, for 21 years, we had enough conflict in, this, in, in, in Sudan to warrant monthly updates. But in April of 2019, Bashir was toppled, and really it was December of 2018 when the the country, Jim Jim said, people get tired of this. Basically, the technocrats educated 
and large elements of the urban working class, which exist in Sudan, said, we're tired of it. And they started massive street demonstrations. Of course, they got shot by some of the, the police, the RSF, Rapid Support Forces, which is a militia that grew out of the Janjaweed and the uh, militias that attacked in Darfur. Notice I left Darfur out completely uh, uh, out of this. There's a UN peacekeeping mission going on in 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 uh, Western Su- uh, Sudan. Boy, did we we cover that! But the process that that Sudan has uh, has gone through really since April of of 2019 is remarkable. They finally got a technocrat economist prime minister Hamdok, who really meant it about creating avenues to uh, promote participation in government in Sudan instead of oppressing them. He uh, a real outreach to these armed rebel groups. Some of the rebel groups are quite sophisticated. There are a couple that are actually just organized gangs. You're, I think they're ultimately going to be the, the type that they're, uh, that's a, this is something we would cover uh, in an update. But Jim noticed this, and I'm, I'm writing about it not just in updates. I did four or five columns uh, for, uh, for Creator Syndicate on, uh, on Sudan from uh, spring 2019 on. Uh, four, uh, four, I think, is what I did about the rather remarkable progress in this. Here's a good news story. And it reached – look, Sudan had been on the U.S. State Department's uh, state sponsor of terrorism a list – since uh, when? The early 1990s, uh, mid, mid, mid-1990s. Uh, it was finally removed in uh, fall, uh, fall 2020. They had to deal with the compensation issue for uh, the survivors and uh, the, f- the families of Americans who were killed in terrorist attacks linked to the Khartoum government. That included the USS Cole uh, attack uh, in, uh, uh, in Yemen in, uh, in 2000, which was uh, an al-Qaeda uh, uh, attack. And it also included the, what, 1998 terror bombings of the American embassies in, in Tanzania and, uh, and Kenya. But it reached a point that despite all of the – and I noticed, I noted this in that long post I wrote on the last regular Sudan update. And Jim, I think, ran that on the 28th of December or something like that. I forget. Whatever. Maybe it's 27. Uh, that you, we had reached a point where what we would be reporting would be uh, – this basically the same report on trying to uh, of a country trying to tamp down the uh, uh, residual uh, uh, trying to address the legitimate grievances and tamp down on the residual violence uh, uh, in the nation rather than being at war with itself. They, they, there's still a ton of problems because the military is very pow- powerful in this transitional government they've got. But they have got a lot of international support and in moving towards a uh, elected civilian government. And if it fell apart, we'd go back uh, to uh, monthly uh, monthly updates. The 
lesson in this, first of all, is that we're not going to cover it unless we can provide, uh, you know, something new uh, about uh, a, a truly grievous, uh, grievous situation. But it can happen. And as Jim said, I've gone through some details on it. This is part of a trend that we've seen in other places around the planet. Is that, are we going to see more of this in 2021? Of course, I can't make a, a prediction like that, uh, Dan. But I, here's, here's a comparison I, that I can't make. We used to cover Peru, really, and the uh, cocaine war that was going on in, in, in Peru. Peru still has, uh, in the high Andes, uh, violent military-type clashes that involve the police and army taking on uh, remnant Sendero Luminoso uh, guerrillas. That was a Maoist group uh, in, uh, in Peru. But what they're doing is acting as a militia providing protection for uh, drug gangs. And it's uh, similar to some of the clashes that the Mexican military has uh, with uh, drug gangs in various places within Mexico. But notice we retired Mexico as well, because the both the, uh, the combination there of ideological dimension and slow isolation, ultimately, these guerrilla groups were criminal gangs, and it became uh, became more of a, a criminal war. And uh, uh, we'll we'll do the police blotter when it's uh, when it's required. That's been. Part of the trend that Jim was talking about. Oh, did Peru have a military government? Oh, Jim, Jim will tell you. Well, it had a superficial um, uh, civilian government. Actually, the, the civilian government is stronger in Peru than it is in and 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 many uh, many uh, uh, other places. But the thing is, is that the comp- the country relied uh, on the military. Not just for security, but also for political security for the uh, for the elites, which is something else Jim has been pointing out was pointing out about going on uh, in China. Uh, so I uh, look, I know I got got off to, uh, talking in some detail uh, about it, but there in in that detail you see the uh, examples of this larger trend that uh, uh, we're talking about about seeing less this less warfare. And where where uh, where it's been going, and that, and that's the reason that we've retired, uh, as in Jim's note on the Sudan uh, update, we've retired more wars than we've added. So, Jim, what do you see for 2021? Uh, more of the same. Uh, Syria has been, well, how should I put it? It's been stumbling towards peace. Uh, the main obstacle to peace in Syria is Iran. Which is which is you know obsessed with uh, doing something violent towards Israel. So far, they've been unsuccessful. Uh, they've taken more losses, you know, than they've far more losses than they've inflicted. They've inflicted basically no losses on Israel. Uh, this infuriates the uh, the radicals in um, in Iran, the IRGC, the Islamic uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps. Um, and uh, they are basically running the show. Now, this is tremendous. This is very unpopular in Iran. It's one of the major reasons for 
the uh, the unrest, which has been going on since 2018. Now, uh, in 2019, uh, they killed over a thousand civilians to stop the large demonstrations, but the demonstrations eventually came back smaller. Uh, they tried to basically keep them from escalating to the point where the uh, where the uh, IRGC would call out their uh, their armed you know uh, armed response you know troops. They have both uh, full time uh, uh, troops for this, as well as a large uh, reserve, the Basish, uh, who are basically street thugs. Uh, but they basically are believers. Uh, they get preference in government jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And all they have to do is basically show up when called and uh, beat down, you know, these uh, students or whoever else is out there, you know, protesting the billions of dollars that Iran has been spending on Syria uh, while, you know, people are getting poorer and poorer uh, inside of Iran. Um, they uh, they basically will have to basically, well, they got to do something. Uh, even if they, 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 they do something... Uh, very violent inside Israel and kill a lot of Israelis. Uh, that really won't change the 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 military balance, as it were, between uh, Israel and uh, and Iran. Uh, it'll simply make the Israelis angrier. The Israelis have a tendency to get give provide payback for any attacks like this, so more Iranians will die. Uh, a lot of the more than half the casualties in Syria, Syrian cas- uh, Iranian casualties are basically Iranian mercenaries who tend to be either Iraqis, uh, Lebanese, or Afghans, of all things. The Afghans are the best, but they're also, they also have to pay higher rates for them because the Afghans know they're better at that sort of thing. Um, and uh, they, uh, they used to have a lot more of those mercenaries, but they cut way back uh, in late ni- 19, uh, 2019 and early 2020 because they simply didn't have the money anymore. Uh, much to the this uh, you know uh, dismay of the IRGC, uh, the the, uh, the 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 clerics who ran the government uh, called out their their accountants and said, "Look, the money's not there. Uh, we'll give you as much as we can get away with, but it's going to be less than half of what you accustomed to getting." So there were huge layoffs in in, in Lebanon where Hezbollah uh, obtained most of their income from Iran. Uh, and of course, you know, Assad, his government, but the trouble with Assad, whom the Israelis, by the way, are, are trying to arrange discussions with via Russia, uh, because as far as they're concerned, you know, putting Assad back in charge of the entire country, uh, is no worse than before the war when the Assad was in charge of the whole country. The country is a lot poor. Uh, there's got, not going to be any free weapons from, uh, Russia or anybody else. Uh, Syria is worse than broke. Uh, so they, they will have Assad in power uh, with with very few chemical weapons, a lot fewer rockets, uh, a lot fewer of everything that they could use to threaten Israel. And of course, even Assad, being a flexible guy that he is, the current Assad, the son of the original, the original Assad, uh, uh, is, you know, he says, look, you got to be pra- pragmatic about these things. Um, and, uh, you know, peace is peace, especially if we get Iran off our back. The trouble is right now that the Assad uh, government has uh, Iranian IRGC people, you know, uh, all through the place asking as advisors or minders, they probably refer to it as, uh, and uh, they could rapidly 
uh, that has to decapitate the Assad government and re- and find some other Syrians who are more willing to follow orders from Iran in order to be in charge. But actually, without the Assad does have a lot of the Assad clan does have a lot of assets for being in power for so long. They developed contacts. They have. They have uh, not just the uh, the Shia minority in uh, Syria, but a lot of the non-Muslim uh, groups. Uh, they basically developed close ties with uh, because they could depend on these people uh, more than they can depend upon the uh, Sunni Arab majority in Syria. Uh, but Israel just wants a peaceful northern frontier, and with Iran out of Syria and Lebanon, uh, they would achieve that. In fact, if they could get, if they could basically get, uh, you know, uh, the IRGC out of the out of the region, they would have a peace in Gaza because the only thing keeping Gaza afloat right now is money coming in from Iran, and some of that is being stopped uh, because they didn't. Basically, Israelis will allow cash in, uh, but only uh, after negotiations. And the Iranians said, you know, we're not going to we're going to negotiate with these. SOBs and they tried to sneak in and boom, they got caught. Uh, so that's another little war you never hear about, but it's it's going on constantly. The uh, the uh, Gazans still get food and medical supplies. Uh, that's scrutinized before it goes in because they found that that being used as a uh, subterfuge for smuggling and weapons and, and and materials for building rockets and what have you. Uh, so nobody's starving to death. In Gaza, but the uh, there's there's a lot less money to tax because uh, even Egypt is cut off. You know, Gaza, Gaza Egypt's at war with Iran, uh, so you know people in the in that part of the world realize that being friends with Iran is not worth it. There's little to gain and much to lose by having Iran on your back. Uh, so this may happen. This may be the big breakthrough uh, uh, over there. Uh, you have the Abraham Accords which apparently the new uh, government in the United States will not try to repeal. They might, but they, they won't be very successful uh, from the opinion polls I've seen. Uh, but whether or not uh, th- that, that process could go forward to make peace with the, uh, with the Assads, uh, that's another story because that's really making a deal with the devil. But hey, if it's a devil you know, and the devil who hasn't got too many choices, you know, making peace with Israel is the, is the least, you know, uh, worst, you know, option. Uh, then you know, and the Israelis are willing to go along with it. You, you go with it. Uh, nobody's been interested in getting involved in the fighting in uh, in Syria. There's only a small detachment of uh, special, American special forces who are basically there to support the Kurds, who we can rely on, as we could in northern Iraq. Um, but you know, so things are probably going to get better. I don't think the fighting is going to escalate in a big way in in Syria. And most indicators point for you know getting quieter and quieter, and uh, the big the big uh, the big tipping point is basically removing Iran from that region, uh, you know the uh, the Mediterranean region of the Middle East, um, and uh, if that if that that is chancy because you're dealing with fanatics here. I mean the the clerical dictatorship has shown uh, a certain amount of circumspection. In the way they run Iran, it, it's a dictatorship. They had the final say, but they allowed a certain amount of democracy. When that democracy got out of hand, 
you know, trying to uh, trying to uh, weaken their or eliminate their their dictatorial power, uh, they would they would strike back. But they realize they can only strike back so much because the Iranian people are sick and tired of it. They've had this for 30 years, for well, going on 40 years, and it's ruined the country. Uh, and this is an open secret. People talk about it. You know, it's street chatter. Uh, you know, it's easy to develop contacts inside Iran. You got to deal with some encryption and what have you to get email out or or tour network, whatever. But you know, people do it, and a lot of it gets out. You know, to the the uh, the uh, exiled Iranian media. Uh, there's a lot of English language versions of that in Europe and the United States. Uh, so it's no secret to the world or to the uh, the leaders in Iran uh, that they have a problem. Uh, and the main obstacle is the IRGC, but the IRGC was established to basically keep a, uh, a religious dictatorship in power. Uh, and what the uh, what the mullahs, the ayatollahs, I should say, uh, the senior uh, clerics are afraid of is that the IRGC, their defenders might turn on them. Now, that's only been whispered about, you know, some of the more extreme members of the IRGC have muttered about that. Uh, but, you know, there's. Iranians in general are smart enough or are savvy enough not to do stupid stuff like that. I mean, it was bad enough they got a religious government, which they weren't supposed to get. Uh, when the Shah was overthrown in 79, and then uh, a, a year later, Saddam Hussein decides to invade Iran when they're weak. Well, they weren't that weak. Uh, and basically causes an eight-year war that gets half a million people killed and, and ruins uh, the economies of both countries. Uh, the um, uh, Without that war, uh, the the clerics who were part of the revolution against the uh, the Shah, they basically had approved of, of free elections, not a religious dictatorship. But in wartime, they basically, you know, it's like the old Roman Republic. You know, you can elect a temporary dictator. Well, in this case, like this uh, Julius Caesar, the dictator or his family uh, turned out to be uh, permanent. Uh, and they're stuck with it. Uh, and for a long time, you know, they said, well, you know, they promised that eventually when they clean things up, things will be better. But they've come to realize that the uh, the uh, clerics and their families are as corrupt as the Shah ever was and a lot more oppressive and killing a lot more Iranians. Uh, so that's something that's a that's one of those historical processes that has to run its course. It's like, you know, in the late 1940s, when the Cold War started, I think it was Keenan. He wrote a uh, an anonymous piece in, in, in Foreign Affairs or some journal saying that the best strategy with the Russians, now that they had nuclear weapons, was to basically just uh, tolerate them until they self-destruct. Now, that was a very insightful and wise decision because nobody wanted nuclear war, including the Russians. They wouldn't admit it, but they were more terrified of a nuclear war than we were. Uh, and, uh, and that's exactly what happened. Much to the surprise of a lot of Russians in the government, they they had basically uh, uh, believed the uh, that they were they were there for the long term. Uh, but one of the things they had done was they had eliminated uh, accounting as a profession, and literally there were very few people working for the Communist Party in Russia in the Soviet Union who could basically do accounting and give an accurate uh, reading of you know exactly what shape the country was in. They eventually found out the hard way when they found out they had no more money. They had no more credit on the international market. They were basically broke. Uh, people were getting hungry, and boom, that was the end of that. Uh, 
And that that advice is still, you know, uh, uh, coaching. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people don't follow what they want, an immediate solution. They're willing to be violent to, to get it and what have you. But the Assad's and the, and the Iranian uh, radicals are finding out that they can only, you know, uh, rule by terror for so long and eventually catches up with them. I, the Islamic State was a, was a prime example of that because they decided to go into high gear and that just meant their demise was quicker than usual. Uh, Al-Qaeda, which always took a more pragmatic approach, uh, they're still operational, much more so than 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 ISIL. Um, but the problem with Islamic terrorism, radicalism, is that it's been around for a thousand years. That's something it's still unfashionable in many parts of the West not to admit. They're admitting it in France now, uh, after God knows how many French citizens have been killed by these maniacs. Um, and a lot of countries, you know, uh, won't even let. Uh, Muslims in. Japan is one example. They have no problem with Islamic terrorism. The worst thing they had was in the 1990s when they had a bunch of radical Buddhists. Now, that seems like something that shouldn't happen, but it does. Uh, and they were basically uh, eliminated quickly after they uh, launched the first and so far only uh, terrorist attack with nerve gas. Uh, but there's Japan for you. The uh, <coughs> Fortunately for the, uh, for the world, uh, the Islamic radicals are regressives. Uh, they don't believe in, in modern tech. They will make use of modern technology, but they can't develop their own. Uh, I mean, Boko Haram in Nigeria, which is, the, which is still one of the main creators of Islamic terrorist, uh, you know, violence and deaths. Uh, Boko Haram literally means Western knowledge is forbidden. So, I mean, you know, this is not just a, 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 a niche thing. This is mainline Salafism, another term for it, invented by an Egyptian intellectual. Uh, anytime you combine, you do try to combine, uh, uh, you know, uh, study, you know, expansion of knowledge, uh, you know, respect for technology, as happened, you know, in the early caliphate, you know, in the uh, about a thousand years ago, uh, you got this pushback. It, it flourished. This is what they talk about, you know, when the, the Arab uh, scholars, you know, passed on the, 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 the ancient knowledge of the Greeks. Well, they did over a thousand years ago until they were shut down by the, uh, the, the Islamic radicals. They said, you're not Islamic enough. You're becoming polluted with this foreign stuff. Allah, you know, Allah, Muhammad would have never, you know, uh, backed this. Well, that's not true. But, you know, they, they, there's no uh, uh, central authority in Islam. Uh, there's no general agreement in Islam on much of anything. So you have all these different schools of Islam and the radicals are the ones most willing to kill other Muslims uh, to get their way. Uh, so that's been a struggle that's been going on inside of Islam, like I say, for over a thousand years. <coughs> and until the Muslims themselves can get together and agree to stop it. And they're aware of this now. I mean, there's open talk in the media, uh, even in Saudi Arabia, uh, that by hook or by crook, we have to solve this problem because it's it's mostly killing us. I mean, even during the war on terror after 9-11, uh, even can't, taking that into account, these terrorism deaths over the next decade, over 90% of them were, were Muslims. You know, so, you know, uh, they may rejoice when, you know, uh, non-Muslims get killed by the Islamic terrorists, but that ha- happens very rarely compared to the enormous number of, uh, you know, uh, deaths 
uh, inflicted on other, on other Muslims. And that has not changed. For a while, they yeah, they threw that, especially after 9-11. said, oh, yeah, now we're really going to stick it to the uh, the infidels, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, it didn't work out that way. But it's been a very expensive mistake on their part and on, on the world's part because it, it cost the West trillions of dollars you know, to try and deal with it. But I think there's general consensus, even though a lot of countries don't admit it, that this is a problem within Islam and they have to solve it. And in the meantime, you know, a lot of countries are restricting the entry of uh, Muslim, you know, immigrants or refugees. Uh, uh, several European countries this is becoming a trend. They're insisting that if they want to get citizenship, not just refugee status, if they want to stay in the Netherlands or Denmark or you name it, the ones that have already signed and now France, you have to acclimate to the local culture, not the other way around. We're not going to become part of some caliphate. Uh, and it took it's amazing. It took over a decade uh, for, you know, Western leaders to realize that. And a lot of them are still saying, oh, no, 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 no. The Germans are still, you know, sort of resistant to that, even though, you know, uh, you look at the statistics of who's committing the, the rapes and the murders uh, and the terrorism attacks. Uh, it all tends to be one group. So oh, it's coincidence. Well, no, it isn't. Uh, and uh, so that's slowly changing. But again, the Islamic vi- terrorist violence was always a small portion of the uh, the violent deaths, as it were, uh, that occurred uh, every year, uh, and it's been it's been steadily uh, declining. But it is called terrorism for a good reason. It terrorizes, and politicians have to pay attention to it, um, as do voters, because you know they're the ultimate victims. They haven't got the kind of security that can protect politicians, uh, and they literally suffer most of the casualties uh, when it isn't addressed on a national level. Uh, Dan, let me make a couple of uh, comments about that. You know, like Bonnie Sauter, uh, who was a Iranian intellectual and uh, oriented towards uh, Western European uh, democratic socialist politics. I mean, that's uh, think France. Think uh, these are rough analogies on it because he's, a, he's from Iran. But French or uh, German, uh, the Social Democratic Party uh, in Germany, and he was the face of Iranian moderates during the Iranian Revolution. He actually had a lot of support, and he got elected president. And the election that was uh, held, when I, I said it was, uh, I think, 1980, when I was, when I, uh, Jim, I came in and Jim was going to talk about Saddam's uh, invasion of Iran. Bonnie Sauter uh, said that the Khomeinists used the Iraqi invasion, which was a, 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 a serious thrust at trying to take uh Khuzestan is what the Iranians call it, Arabistan is what the Arabs call it, but it's Iran's, one of its chief oil producing uh, regions, and it's right uh, on the Iraqi-Iranian Iranian border. Bonnie Sauter said that that used that crisis to do something he wanted to do, I'm talking about the Ayatollah, which was impose a, an Islamic revolutionary state whose goal was global revolution. And he said that they undermined us. Uh, I'm uh, using my terms from the really the Russian revolution. Think of Bonnie Sauter and his group as the Mensheviks and, and uh, the Ayatollah 
Khomeini as the Bolsheviks, and you're not all that far off uh, from uh, what happened. Now, in at least three of the four editions of A Quick and Dirty Guide to War, uh, Jim and I talked about or mentioned that there is this large number of Iranians, it's really, I think, a substantial majority that are uh, don't support, and, and they've certainly over the last seven or eight years, they've been a decreasing support for the uh, robed dictatorship, as, uh, as they call it. The dictatorship has been under heavy challenge really since the end of 2017. And you can go and look at Iranian, uh, Iran updates. Some of the things were written in, in Yemen as well. There, I've done, I want to say, yeah, let's see, that's three years. I want to say I've done four or five columns on it that picks up uh, on uh, the Iran's internal, in, in, internal dynamics. But more or less, continual protests or evidence of public dissatisfaction to the point of even, you know, public protests that, 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 that uh, the regime cannot sh- uh, shut down where they're calling for removal of officials, even change uh, in, in Tehran. And uh, they, there have been at least two very brutal acts of uh, re- repression where either scores or a couple of hundred people were killed. Uh, both in Tehran and a, and a couple of other uh, larger cities. I'm talking about spates of violence. They weren't just localized in, 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 in Tehran. The dissatisfaction is deep. And there are two things that really put a ton of pressure on the regime right now. One is this slow process, but it's, it's, it's real, of, of Muslim regimes – Arab Muslim regimes uh, reaching an accommodation with Israel. I didn't say a peace agreement. I think the UAE deal with 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 Israel's a, a peace deal, and the Egypt deal, cold peace. But it's it's for real. The Egyptians have no interest in fighting the Israelis, and if anything, they uh, act as allies in, in trying to deal with uh, the Iranian uh, troublemaking in, in, in Gaza and. Uh, uh, primarily in, in Gaza. And you've got Israel acting as a quasi-ally with the uh, Arab forces that, that oppose the Iranian-backed uh, 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 rebels uh, in Yemen. You've got Saudi Arabia, which for 20 years at least uh, has recognized that there's, you know, the Saudis know they're real enemies of the Iranians, and that Israel really has their back, at least in terms of protecting airspace. There's open source information to support that. So you've got this momentum. Some of it was was it utilized, I should say that. It wasn't created by the Trump administration, but the Trump administration was aware of it. And turned it into public diplomacy by getting these recognitions or the, the situation between Sudan and Israel. It's not a peace agreement, but it's a fact that the Sudanese government uh, is, has a, enough elements in there. It, 
in this is the case, the military is accused by some of the uh, uh, civilians of having made this quasi deal with the, with the Israelis without open consultation. I mentioned that in that last Sudan uh, uh, update, but it's uh, it, it it has to do with. Uh, creating more stability and seeing Israel as both an economic and intelligence and a political, al- uh, uh, political ally. And th- who's the, who does that put pressure on? Iran. The Ayatollahs seem to think that their way out is a revitalization of the JCPOA, the you know, joint uh, comprehensive uh, a plan that uh, the uh, Obama administration created. It was essentially paying Iran billions of dollars so that they would slow down their nuclear uh, weapons uh, program. Uh, basically, that deal, which I, I said was a phony, and it was a, co- a complete phony, it has, it has run its course, and the Iranians were cheating on it, uh, cheating on it anyway. But that, to re create that or bring it back would give the dictatorship, the Iranian dictatorship, uh, a victory both internally and uh, internationally. They would not be, they suffer the penalties that they deserve to suffer suffer for all of the murderous troublemaking that they are engaged in, uh, not just in uh, their own immediate Southwest Asia uh, area and uh, Africa, but they have tendrils in the in, in, into Europe, the Balkans, and also definitely uh, uh, Central uh, Central Asia. And I bring that up because that's something that we're going to face in 2021. If there's a Biden administration, are they going to? Is there going to be a uh, demand by former Obama administration uh, personnel? who absolutely sold their soul that, that uh, the JCPOA was a source of peace. It was not. It was a source that Ayatollahs didn't use it for development, the, the money. They used it to uh, wage more war. Uh, now they've got all this other pressure point, uh, points on them, uh, increasing alienation of the Iranian people. Uh, Am I predicting a revolt in Iran? No, I'm not. I tell folks, go look at the introduction of the Iran chapter of the 1996 edition of a, of a, of a quick and dirty guide to war, and definitely in 2008. The critical question is, when will the Iranian people be willing to spend their blood in the streets uh, to the point that the uh, Pasad Iran, the, the Revolutionary Guard, decides that they're going to quit shooting uh, their own people. And then the regime's going, uh, going to collapse internally. And they have yet to reach that point. But the pressure is something reaching a, it's, it's reaching a point where the uh, dictatorship it, itself has so many internal problems that uh, there's a possibility it's going to collapse itself. I'm not going to put a date on it. But all those factors are there, and the release valve is uh, the United States uh, suddenly going back to an Obama administration type um, appeasement, I'll use that word, that we saw in 2015. Uh, is that a big deal? It's a, it's a very big deal. 
And when you look at all of the little wars that we're still covering that have can be traced back to uh, to Iran and uh, the terror that can be traced back uh, to Iran as well. Well, it's time for us to wrap up. Um, so uh, we'll continue to watch this year. And even though we're reporting on fewer wars, we will be covering uh, development in uh uh, armed forces around the world and uh, continue to cover military hardware, which is always going on, uh, never slows down. And uh, it will be one of it, part of our, our, our ongoing coverage. So uh, we'll, be, we'll, we'll be devoting more time. We've already been doing this to what's now being called great pa- uh, power competition. Because that's and that deals it deals with the, the you know the factors that you just uh, raised. But then of course look at the stuff that uh, Jim and I both write and what Al Nofi provides uh, in, in, in research on 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 communist China and uh, big. All right, we'll see you gentlemen next time. Happy, Happy New Year, guys. Bye. Bye bye. Bye.